Pints with Jack, Season 4, Episode 90. After Hours with Dr. Stephen Thorson. Welcome, everyone. Pints with Jack is your weekly C.S. Lewis podcast where Matt, Andrew, and I break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. We've finished Screwtape, we've discussed The Silver Chair, and we're now just wrapping up Season 4 with some interviews. And earlier this season, we had a month that was dedicated to the life and work of Lewis's fellow inkling, Owen Barfield. And today, we return once more to the subject of this inkling with Dr. Stephen Thorson. Dr. Stephen Thorson earned an MD degree from Pennsylvania State University and an MA in Theological Studies from Wheaton College, where he was awarded the Cancer Award in Christian History and Theology. He has published many medical research studies, theological articles, and essays on C.S. Lewis. Dr. Thorson has been involved in vaccine-preventable disease research, sponsored by Oxford University. He has contributed most of the articles for the award-winning book Applied New Testament Commentary, as well as for those in the Applied Old Testament Commentary. He has worked in the country of Nepal since 1984, where he has served as a missionary and taught systematic and comparative theology in seminaries. And he's here today to discuss the content of his 2015 book, Joy and Poetic Imagination, Understanding C.S. Lewis's Great War with Owen Barfield and its significance for Lewis's conversion and writings. Dr. Thorson, welcome to Pints with Jack. Well, thank you very much for having me. Now, I first came across your work when I heard your interview on All About Jack, which is William O'Flaherty's podcast. I knew a little bit about Barfield's Great War with Lewis, but many people had told me that their dialogue gets pretty dense and the ideas involved quickly become fairly impenetrable. However, on William's podcast, you spoke with some real clarity about Barfield's work and how it influenced Lewis. So I wanted to get you onto the show just to pick your brain before you return to Nepal. Thank you. We hope to return in early August for two months. August and September this year. Well, on Pints with Jack, we've got a few standard segments we have to get through before we can dive into the subject matter proper. The first is the quote of the week, which comes from Owen Barfield. What an argumentative man Lewis was, in the best sense. And I'll admit here that I found this quotation in a paper that you wrote, but I couldn't actually track down the source. Do you know where it's from off the top of your head? It's from an address that Owen Barfield gave at Wheaton College in 1964, less than a year after Lewis died, and Barfield's address was printed in his book, uh, Owen Barfield on C.S. Lewis. I still haven't read that, which is a terrible omission on my part. <laughs> Next up, we got the drink of the week, and today I'm drinking a steaming cup of Earl Grey tea in possibly the most patriotic mug ever. I think even Queen Elizabeth would be a little bit embarrassed about how jingoistic this one is. Uh, Dr. Thorson, are you drinking anything? I'm drinking decaffeinated Earl Grey. I've already had my coffee for the morning. <laughs> Decaffeinated. In a Nepal, in a Nepal, Nepal flag. Cup. There you go. <laughs> well, cheers. Cheers. So I'm used to calling a lot of the guests on this show doctor, but I think you're actually the first medical doctor that we've had. So before we get into the weeds of epistemology and metaphysics of Barfield, uh, would you please tell our listeners a little bit more about your background? Well, I'm a pediatrician and have been a missionary in Nepal for uh, 36 years, and am now semi-retired in the United States. And after my MA in theological studies, however, I did teach theology, as you mentioned, for 28 years, and I still teach there by Zoom in the fall, and I teach an elective at Bethany Global University, a mission school in Bloomington, Minnesota. Have you ever thought of doing something as well? Maybe get a law degree as well at the same time? I mean, <laughs> do, you, no. do you have too much spare time? What, what is the problem here? No, <laughs> I did work three halftime jobs for many years there. 
Well, how did you become interested in the Inklings and in particular interested in the arguments in the 1920s between Lewis and Barfield? Well, I first discovered Lewis by accident. I loved science fiction, and there was a book out of the Silent Planet in our high school library. I read it and then asked for them to buy the second and third. And the third one, I thought this Maladale has to be Jesus Christ. <laughs> and I was a Christian at the time, and eventually I read all that I could borrow or buy of Lewis's books. I have done research in the Bodleian Library as far back as 1980 and many times after that because I went there for medical conferences. I also did quite a bit of research in the Wade Center. I had read a book uh, by, well, I shouldn't mention the name, by a scholar on the great war between Barfield and Lewis, and it seemed confused and he didn't seem to quite understand Lewis. And I researched that as well and found that this book did not, in fact, give a fair representation of Lewis's arguments in the 20s. So then I became interested in writing, and I've written a lot of articles, and finally this book. Wow. So you began with Lewis's science fiction, not Narnia, and then you stumbled into digging into the Great War because you read a book by another author that you didn't think was very good. Right. Beautiful. <laughs> I, I only discovered Tolkien because of the that hideous strength mentions in the beginning about something still in manuscript by his friend Tolkien. So I went to see if he'd published. So it was quite a surprise. <laughs> I'm one of the few people who did. Well, back in the, in the 60s, I didn't know anything about either author. Wow. Well, I had heard about Barfield and Lewis's Great War uh, from mainly, I think, the different accounts of Lewis's life, various biographies, as well as the fairly brief reference in Lewis's own autobiography. He talks a little bit about Barfield, but still, it, it just it just seemed brief to me. And I never knew too much about the contents of the actual arguments. I knew that Barfield cured Lewis of his chronological snobbery, and I knew that he basically brought him much more towards a, a spiritual outlook uh, and not just mere materialism and a little bit closer towards the theism and ultimately Christianity, which would, he would embrace. Uh, but how important is it to understand this great war if we want to understand Lewis. And also, why is this Great War so rarely discussed in detail? Well, I think that it's actually essential. I mean, Lewis himself says that this is an intellectual conversion of his from materialism, he called it realism, to idealism, which is the idea that the world is basically mental, not physical, to pantheism, the idea that everything is really God in some sense, or we're really God, to theism simple, and then to Christianity. And people sometimes talk about the philosophy, but they don't discuss how important this argument with his friend Barfield was in this journey. I think it's the largely untold story of Lewis's conversion. Mm. Lewis claims that it was, it was the, the Great War was a turning point in his life, and it was, in many, many ways, because much that he wrote later as a Christian uses arguments that he developed as a non-Christian in his arguing with his friend Barfield. At least we see this from the extant letters and, and treatises that they wrote to each other. They have Latin titles, but they were written in English, and it's very readable if you read Lewis's part. It's, as usual, Barfield's a little more difficult to understand because he's a bit indirect, hmm. but he's a little more direct in these treatises that he wrote. Most importantly, however, many scholars, by not understanding the Great War, often make two mistakes. They confuse the pre-Christian Lewis with the post-conversion Lewis and try to blend the two or something, and they don't understand how his view of 
epistemology, which is how we know what we know, changed after his conversion. And if they don't understand that change, then they're making mistakes. The second major mistake they made is to argue with Lewis's epistemology without understanding the metaphysics that it was based upon. Metaphysics here is simply, in my use of it here, what we are as human beings. And if they understood the Great War, they would not make either of these mistakes. The biographies of Lewis also, even some recent ones after my book was published, uh, ignore the Great War or only mention a paragraph without examining what Lewis called his major turning point. Am I right in saying that some of the, the primary sources for this stuff only came out relatively recently? Uh, the actual, those exchanges between uh, Lewis and Barfield, and I think even a lot of the letters weren't even included in the early collections. This is true, but most of these people I'm talking about have actually studied both in the Wade Center and the Bodleian, or in one or the other, and all of these were extant in the, uh, as, as a photocopy at least, in both of these collections. And yet they still sort of skip over it. We were talking before the show about Lewis's conversion and about it being twofold, and I find the bigger jump in many ways is trying to get somebody to move from materialism to belief in God. And it it does strike me as very strange that that gets skipped over quite so quickly. But even Lewis himself in Surprised by Joy, his transition to Christianity, it seems slightly rushed in terms of he had this conversation with Tolkien. And then a little bit later, he goes for a ride with his brother, and now I'm a Christian. It's like, <laughs> I, I always want to know more. And I think I'm not the only person to be surprised by joy and wanting those sections to be unpacked a little bit further. But even, even Lewis seems to rush through it. He rushes at the end. He's basically talking about his reoccurring experience of joy or desire, which is not just longing or zainzucht, even though he uses the German word. It's not just longing simple, like you sit there in a reverie dreaming about what happens if you lived in a castle or something. It's a sudden stab of desire for something unknown, really. And it's he's often described it in several places, including Barfield has described it this way, as a longing for a longing that has just passed. So some of these biographers just love to talk about his argument from desire, which is not really an argument from our desire for something greater in life. It's really an argument for this experience he had, which he thought was more common than I think he found out it was, that this experience was what drove him to keep considering uh, his philosophy. And it's his experience that finally drove him to leave uh, materialism or scientific materialism. And in fact, that may have started even before their arguments uh, about anthroposophy, that he was starting to consider there was some truth in some of the more uh, philosophical, idealistic views. And I, in my book, I try to ignore some of the smaller subsections of that. But he, he actually tells in quite great detail, I think, all of the steps that were involved in his finally becoming a theist is where he becomes a Christian after becoming a theist that he rushes it very much at the end. Mm. Now, you were publishing articles about the Barfield-Lewis War even during the lifetime of Owen Barfield. I mean, he died only comparatively recently. And I, I heard that you got a rather nice letter from him. Yes, actually, he sent several letters of appreciation for my understanding his views. He, he hadn't had 
anybody actually understand him. And he did write indirectly for a reason. He was trying to get a hearing, I think, among evangelical Christians, say at Wheaton, where he often spoke and his letters and uh, in his own uh, collection often ended up there in many respects. Some of it's in the Bodleian. And he he was trying to get past probably their watchful dragons <laughs> as Orthodox Christians to try to introduce some of Steiner's anthroposophy. So he was intentionally indirect in many ways. Um, I think he would have shocked people if he had been as direct as as he could have been. But many who read Lewis did not understand this anthroposophy or uh, Rudolf Steiner's uh, uh, occult or scientific knowledge, uh, scientific si- uh, or spiritual science that he called it. And they did not understand that between the, the big divide between Lewis and Barfield on these joy or di- experience or imaginative experiences, Barfield called his poetic imagination. And they differed very much on whether these experiences could bring true knowledge of fact in the universe, uh, which would only be knowable by supersensible awareness, not by our sense senses. And this is important because Barfield recognized that I understood where he was coming from, even though he did know that I agreed with Lewis rather than Barfield on the issues. Well, there you just mentioned Steiner and anthroposophy. So Let's now take this from the top. Let's set the context. Lewis and Barfield, they both arrive in Oxford in 1919. Uh, Where were they at in their uh, distinctive intellectual and spiritual journeys at this point? Well, Lewis was uh, trying to be an atheist or a materialist who disbelieved in any god, angels, demons, or spirits of any kind. He wrote this to his uh, uh, teenage friend, in uh, Ireland. He tried to believe that his experiences of joy were actually untrue. He even tried to believe that they were deceptive in some sense and sucking him in when it wasn't the true uh, universe. Uh, Barfield had been raised an agnostic and also experienced something like Lewis's joy when he read lyric poetry, very similar to Lewis's experience of joy, but he only started experiencing that when he went to Oxford. Lewis had had these since he was uh, 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 preteen, and uh, Bar- uh, Barfield felt that he was understanding something about uh, lyric poetry. Seemed to show him something about the universe that was true. That this was a true knowledge that he was receiving, even though uh, it wasn't something that he could get through his senses. Lewis had, as I said, mentioned that this was a sudden stab, immediately fading away. And uh, not nostalgia or homesickness or a reverie or a daydream, but a sudden stab that could be aroused by memory or something from his past, but might be aroused by nature at the moment. But it would be sudden and go away. Barfield's experience of lyric poetry felt that he felt that he was expanding the meaning of words, uh, that this experience expanded the meaning of words, not necessarily himself, and that were reacting on his experience of the outer world, nature and history. Uh, so he believed he gained true knowledge from these experiences, and Lewis did not. Basically, then their great war was begun over an argument over these experiences of theirs, their similar experience, not quite the same, but similar. And they argued over whether, um, indeed, there was uh, more than just aesthetic value in these experiences, but whether there was some uh, truth about reality that was being ex- experienced. You said Barfield felt like he was uh, receiving knowledge through these uh, super sense experiences. Beyond the five senses, he felt he was receiving knowledge. But is that can that be articulated what this knowledge was? Or is it still more of 
feeling like you're encountering something true, but you're unable to put any of it into words. Well, Barfield believed that he was getting true knowledge at this point when they met, and Lewis felt that this was an illusory sort of uh, psychological uh, deception at the moment, but he still liked the experiences, but he didn't think that they had any truth in them. So Barfield felt, however, that once you had this experience and saw something true about the universe that was not found by our senses or usual ways of gaining knowledge, that you then could bring that to the world and see how it was confirmed, etc. And so uh, both Steiner and Barfield believed that you could actually get new non- uh, knowledge about the universe that would be seeable by other people who practiced the same meditation uh experiences and training in anthroposophy that would allow you to see these truths. And Lewis, of course, uh, didn't think that even his own experience of joy was true. But I think Barfield finally got him to realize that there was meaning in these experiences, but he was never able to accept that there was knowledge. So the key word really here is knowledge. As I said, Lewis was moving through several forms of idealism that the world is basically mental. When O.B. became a follower later, several years later, of Rudolf Steiner, and I will say that he's an Austrian neo-Gnostic philosopher who, who founded the, what he called an occult science or spiritual science of anthroposophy. Anthroposophy means the wisdom of man. And Steiner defined it as a path of knowledge from the spiritual in man to the spiritual in the universe. Again, notice the word knowledge. And so Barfield says he was shocked to find that Steiner was saying, it seemed to know much more than he ever knew about the expansion of knowledge from his aesthetic experiences of lyric poetry. A follower described anthroposophy as knowledge of higher worlds that could be discovered through training, one's awareness of a reality around us that is not known through the senses, this supersensible awareness again. This involves the evolution of our consciousness toward a godlike state, reincarnation and karma, they also believed that they had discovered that there were two conscious persons within Jesus Christ, two Satan figures, and other ideas not accepted by Orthodox churches. Now, Lewis was not a Christian at the time, but he was still horrified because he thought this was involving uh, dabbling in magic and uh, was going to lead to him becoming mad. But Barfield finally showed him that this was much more of a stodgy philosophical thing than it was, you know, dabbling with candles and flames and and seances. And so he wasn't as horrified later on in life and even wrote a a blurb for anthroposophists saying he did thought that they were uh, rational people who believed in this philosophy, but even though he didn't agree with it himself. But, but Barfield eventually convinced Lewis, uh, he says this, that He convinced Lewis of the value and truthfulness of our reason, our imagination, and morals. He never accepted anthroposophy, even as a non-Christian, but he did move from his rock-bottom reality, scientific, materialistic naturalism, to some form of idealism that he moved back and forth on while he was studying philosophy and teaching philosophy at Oxford. So listening to your description of how Barfield understood this process, it sort of seems to me like he imagined that once you had experienced this joy, this poetic imagination, it was almost kind of like an illumination, uh, at which point 
you could then go on and study these deeper things. But it's almost like experiencing experiencing that poetic imagination, that joy, zenzut, whatever we want to call it, that that is, is an awakening, an illumination um, that is a prerequisite to really starting to dig into these other ideas. Is that fair? Well, I think, I think no, because for instance, the things I just mentioned that were Orthodox Christianity doesn't accept, there's no way to actually test them with our normal scientific methods. Therefore, it was an acceptance of some bald truths that seemed to occur to someone in the midst of these experiences without being able to actually um, test them. Mm. That was the whole point. Lewis said, well, I'm willing to take meaning from these, and then I'm willing to go and do uh, and subject them to scientific tests. Well, this seemed a bit like dissecting the live animal <laughs> rather than experiencing the live animal to Barfield. And so they, that's part of what they argued back and forth on. But that's sort of what I mean by needing this experience first. It's almost like this is an enlightenment initiation, that until this has happened, you're going to think everything else that we say is crazy. Yes. Lewis felt that that you could never, this is very important in his biography, and I didn't get into this so far, but he he believed that you couldn't actually both look at an illuminating experience as well as experience this at the same time. So you couldn't suddenly in the middle of your experiencing this stab of joy or desire or longing for a longing that he gets, he couldn't then turn around and immediately look at it without destroying the experience. Introspection actually stops the experience of something. If you're feeling love for someone and then you dispassionately start examining what is love anyways and why am I loving this person? You're no longer actually loving the person. You're now doing something else. You're doing a something. And you can, he said you can uh, go back and forth between these two at the same time, but you can't actually at the same time experience a feeling or an illumination and or a meaning and then examine it to see whether it's true or false at the same time. That's from Samuel Alexander, isn't it? Am I remembering that? Yeah. Yes, one of his philosophers who, the philosopher that, <laughs> he met this philosopher, one, or at least he heard him speak once. This philosopher actually uh, was not an idealist at all. And so for him to take this truth that he felt was true in daily and hourly experience from Alexander meant that when he put it into the Great War and he put it into his pantheistic uh, views at the time he wrote his main treatise against anthroposophy for Barfield, that this, uh, he had to adapt it to a pantheistic uh, philosophy rather than Alexander's own. Hmm. So, at this point, the Great War has kicked off. As it progressed, in what areas did Barfield change Lewis's mind specifically? And in what areas did he fail to bring Lewis to his point of view. You've said that he didn't make an anthroposophist out of him, uh, but what did he actually manage to achieve? Well, first of all, he, as you mentioned earlier, he destroyed Lewis's chronological snobbery, which you, we haven't discussed for new readers maybe what that means. It means that the things that are out of, out of date because someone a hundred years ago discussed them are not necessarily false unless someone has shown that they're false. Just by being a snob that the more recent people are believing this doesn't actually uh, argue against an idea from a hundred or five hundred or a thousand years ago. 
And uh, this was very important for Lewis because he suddenly realized he was being a bit of a snob about old ideas when, in fact, he said, for instance, that the square on the hypotenuse doesn't grow moldy and old because it's, it's from Pythagoras. Anyways, Obi also showed Lewis that materialistic naturalism left no place for his correct reasoning or the claim that moral or aesthetic judgment were valid or objective. I think we'll leave it at that. He gets into it in great detail, Lewis does, in Miracles and in a few other places. But uh, he mentions it in his biography that um, he realized that it wasn't just his experience of joy, but all reasoning and moral reasoning, and it doesn't survive in a naturalistic or scientific materialist uh, world. This resulted in Lewis temporarily arguing for a pantheism that was very similar to Owen Barfield's. Not exactly, but very close, and Barfield was happy with it. Uh, Lewis's main treatise in the Great War was that each of our souls is projected from one great spirit and that we could all claim is in some sense ourself. The second part of it goes on to talk about imagination as the highest form of the spiritual life. But again, he argued that it brought meaning, and but did not give us knowledge. And so Barfield was arguing on that. So is that is that where a lot of this confusion comes from? Trying to pick apart Lewis's ideas pre-conversion, during Great War, and post-conversion because he moves through these different stages. So if you read him at one point, he sounds like a materialist. Another point, he sounds like a pantheist. And if you read the later Lewis, he sounds like a Orthodox Christian. Well, it certainly results in confusion when people try to take anything they've heard from the Great War and try to say that that's what the post-conversion to Christianity uh, Lewis felt. And uh, in fact, Lewis even says in The Personal Heresy, which is a series of uh, published arguments back and forth with Tilliard over the importance or the truthfulness, really, of poetry. It's a lot like the Great War. This is after he became a Christian. He starts off a lot like he was thinking in, in the Great War time. And by the time he's end, he says, I realize now that I was exaggerating the importance of imagination there. So what's happening is people are thinking that Lewis continued to hold this high view of imagination as the highest spiritual state, when in fact, he says in his uh, autobiography, Surprised by Joy, that it had to, imagination in his Christian life had to take a lower place that it was not equivalent to being a spiritual person. Although it could have great value, it wasn't the same thing as being spiritual. And he makes a distinction, actually, I discussed in the book, between spirit and soul. So he actually has a three-part view of man, which is nothing like the sort of camp psychology and theology of modern evangelicals today. It was more of the, like the medieval distinction between a rational soul and an animal soul. And uh, he makes this very clear in several essays. And so imagination moved from this high view to a low view in uh, when he became a Christian. Lewis felt that in the great war time, that when we were having this imaginative experience, we were seeing as spirit sees. So in some sense, we couldn't look at spirit, but we could experience uh, life as spirit does when we're in this imaginative experience. And when he became a Christian, he realized that this imaginative experience was something that did not make us see as God, but maybe God was using it in his life, at least, to point him toward God, but he didn't think that it was automatically 
uh, pointing everyone toward God, but that God, in fact, can use imagination to point people toward God and did in his own life. However, you asked what that was what sort of way he got out of Barfield is he moved toward this pantheistic view, but still refused to accept knowledge from this experience. And Barfield then argued with him that if you're actually seeing a spirit sees, if you're actually projected from the great spirit, how can you say experiencing what spirits sees is not showing truth? Because spirit would, of course, see truth. And this was a very telling argument, I believe. And uh, Lewis was forced to either give up his pantheistic worldview of us being souls projected from the great spirit, or accept that it was true knowledge coming from these experiences. And to the sadness of Barfield, he gave up his pantheistic worldview rather than give up what he felt Alexander had showed him, that you could not experience love and examine the feelings of love at the same time. You couldn't experience joy and examine what was happening with that experience of joy that had just left you at the same time. So uh, instead of accepting OB's epistemology based on their, at that point, shared metaphysics or ontology, he gave up that shared worldview of pantheism or something very close to Barfield's pantheism in order to keep the truth that these experiences gave meaning, but not knowledge of true facts. Shortly after that, he did accept as a theist that a true creation by God was needed instead of a pantheistic projection. He now felt that we were, we had reason like God, but that didn't mean we were rejected from God because we make mistakes. And so we are an image of God's reason, for instance, and an image of God's creative instincts, but we make mistakes and we're not the same thing as God. So throughout this journey, Lewis is trying to square a philosophy that fits with what he's experienced and, yeah. and the consequences of it. So he he saw a problem if if we if what he, basically he'd have to dispense with Alexander's idea if he was going to follow through on his current model. So he ditched the model. Right. He dipped the model, and Barfield was very sad about that. Of course, when he became a Christian, it wasn't just creation; it was the uh, creation that he could accept with theism. But when he became a Christian, he needed the concept of the incarnation. That it, he said that we can't turn around and look at God at the same time as we're sort of experiencing God, but he in the great war. But when he became a Christian, he realized that number one, we were separate, created by God to be a separate person. But number two, God, in fact, was incarnated in Jesus Christ so that we could see him in this world. And we do see him in scriptures today. And the apostles did see him in, in physical form back then. So he accepted both creation and incarnation. And he said later that the great divide really with anthroposophy was creation. Mm and not projection, and that the incarnation was needed for him to be able to see and talk about God. And that relates to something else that I wanted to briefly discuss, because when I first started reading about anthroposophy and started dipping into the works a little bit, it did strike me as sounding an awful lot like Gnosticism. And that was how you referred to it earlier, sort of a neo-Gnosticism uh, idea. From what sources were the anthroposophists drawing? So, in in Barfield's conception, they have they've had these imaginative experiences. But when I you know when I when I read about anthroposophy, it seems to cover everything, and it seems to be drawn from all over the place. What is what is sort of like the guiding spirit, so to speak? What is what is what is it that determines 
from where they're drawing these ideas? Well, Rudolf Steiner never discusses this sort of joy or poetic imagination that was the basis of the philosophical journeys of of uh, Lewis, at least. And Steiner actually was influenced a bit by theosophy, uh, which is supposed to be the wisdom of God, and their Eastern uh, roots. And he loved a lot of those Eastern roots. So when he believed, for a number of philosophical reasons, that we are projected from a great spirit. Um, he felt that, in fact, that great spirit is evolving in consciousness through all of our soul's consciousness. And that, for instance, just briefly, when we think two plus two equals four, and you think two plus two equals four, that's not really two different thinkings. He says we're all going to the same thinking, which seemed to be evidence to him that we were all part of a larger mind behind us. And so this evolution of consciousness requires reincarnation and karma. It requires us to be uh, reincarnated over and over again so that we can experience more and more of an individual soul's experience of the world to contribute to the great spirit. And he felt that there was truth in a lot of these older Eastern uh, religions and philosophy, just as theosophy did. And I, I think he was largely influenced by that. I don't think, I can't, I personally don't believe that he saw the truth of reincarnation and karma and two different Satans and figures and two different Jesuses within one body from his meditation. I, I just don't, don't, obviously I can't accept that as an Orthodox Christian, but Barfield did believe that that was true. And it did believe that the, and anthroposophy believes that the incarnation of Jesus was the central point of history. Um, but they don't, in fact, Barfield has once talked about the death of Jesus as a tragic mistake. Which sounds a little bit like the Episcopal ghost in The Great Divorce. <laughs> yes. You mentioned the, the meditations. And when I, when I read about Steiner, I found this was a big part of his system. What did that actually involve? Well... Um, well, it involved ultimately intuition and, and imagination and inspiration. And uh, it was done by training. So they did meditative training. Lewis, in one letter in the Great War, that's the, the Great War letters are in the back of the uh, appendix, on the third volume of the collected letters of Lewis. And he mentions in there that uh, Barfield had asked him to meditate on a seed for several hours and some sort of blue light would come from around the seed <laughs> and he would see. I think he's being facetious that this was a little bit simplistic and a little, un, uh, a little rude to Barfield about, <laughs> about this experience. But it was meditation and, and special training that you needed in order to see these truths that are super sensible and not actually from the seed, but come from beyond hmm. the higher worlds. And you can travel in those higher worlds. I mean, he has, uh, Barfield has in one of his sort of philosophical discussion books, uh, discusses a, a spirit guide. I mean, it's very much seems similar to modern new age, not so modern now, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, new age sort of thinking nowadays, it's moved on to a several other lumped uh, ideas. But the point is, it seems to be awful lot influenced by Eastern religion and philosophies rather than um, anything Western. Now, obviously, 
you cover a lot of this material we've discussed in detail in your book, Joy and Poetic Imagination. So would you just mind whetting the appetites of the listeners by telling them a little bit more about the topics they will uh, learn about if they pick up a copy? Well, first of all, they'll see a description of both Barfield and Lewis's uh, experiences, Lewis's joy and Barfield's poetic imagination. You can call that with capital letters because they did. And then there's a discussion of each of the treatises and letters of the Great War, explaining Lewis's temporary version, which is important to know, of pantheism and the high view of imagination, which also he didn't continue to hold, of seeing as spirit sees, only meaning not knowledge of truth and and falsehood. And then I go over the post-confusion views of Lewis and how they're dramatically different. At least by 10 years later, it's dramatically different. Although a few a year or two later, Lewis was very clear that he wasn't pantheistic anymore. Um, and I show how these great war arguments appear in all of his Christian writings throughout his life and toward the end even. And I discuss Lewis's three-part view of human beings and how he felt that this was terribly important for him to be able to answer that being a great musician or a great artist or a great writer didn't make you spiritual because he had to distinguish between two parts of our mind, a natural part of soul or psychological and a spiritual part that was in some sense supernatural and outside the uh, chain link cause and effect naturalism that he'd held before. Uh, He shows how, I show how uh, he uses these arguments in showing how belief and faith are valid and the new lower place for imagination and how the Holy Spirit is involved in God's revelation to humankind. And there's a final chapter uh, of the main chapters on Lewis's clear denial of Owen Barfield's evolution of consciousness and how Barfield uh, wondered why Lewis didn't become an anthroposophist because he hadn't quite understood the difference between change and progress in Lewis's mind. I also end with a uh, little conclusion conclusion chapter of each man's warnings to each other. They both were very worried about their friend for their views. And Lewis has drawings and stories and um, uh, Barfield has stories in a verse drama uh, where they give warnings to each other about uh, their view being so wrong that they are in some sense in danger. And this is where I get a little more personal and say, well, I happen to accept Lewis's, Lewis's argument. But It's interesting that uh, this is the chapter that some people are upset with because I'm trying to say that they're warning each other when I think they clearly knew they were warning each other. Hmm. Um, There's also some definitions of philosophical terms and a discussion questions at the end of each chapter that can help people if they're using it to study in a group. Just as you were just wrapping everything up there, I I thought of a couple of things that I I meant to ask. So you've spoken about... Uh, Lewis having a lower view of imagination uh, after the Great War, but it is still kind of high. I mean, you know, he speaks of the mind being the organ of truth and the imagination, the organ of meaning. I mean, that's still pretty significant, but it's just the point. It's it's still not Barfieldian. It's still not, this is how we get knowledge. Right. His high view of imagination became lower, but he didn't denigrate it. He thought it was terribly valuable all his life. And as far as the imagination was where he lived all his life and where he taught and wrote books and and such a great imaginative writer himself. Imagination wasn't, was valuable, which is why he kept pursuing a different philosophy that would allow it to be valuable. And naturalism didn't work. And then idealism didn't seem to work. And suddenly this, um, 
great spirit started talking to him <laughs> and, and he was praying to it, etc. And so he became a theist and finally a Christian when he realized that Jesus Christ really could be the son of God. And the idea of imagination being low is not what I'm saying. It's just, he said he was exaggerating it himself. He said, I'm exaggerating. And he said it had to take a lower place, but it was still a very important place. It's what in a sense makes us human and uh, it, rather than just uh, an angel or a demon. And uh, he, he didn't have a low view of imagination, but he had a lower view after he became a Christian and he still used it effectively. He still said that these experiences of joy were what God used in his life, not necessarily everybody's, but in his life. It isn't automatic, it isn't spiritual in itself, but God used it in a spiritual way to bring him to himself. Mm. So imagination was what brought him to God and Christ. So it's not low, it's just not this ultra spiritual highest state of the spiritual life. Mm -hmm. It has to take its place where it should be, like he talks about in Four Loves. You know, any of these uh, loves can become a demon if they try to be a god. They have to take their place as secondary things underneath God's love. And that's an excellent advertisement for next season when we will be going through the Four Loves. Uh, One of the other things that you mentioned was about Lewis's rejection of the evolution of consciousness. And when we went through Barfield Month, this was an idea that I really liked uh, insofar as when you look at the data, yes, you do see humans talking about their experiences differently as time goes on. There do seem to be shifts. And I always get the impression that Lewis gets that as well. But where does he, where does he fall short for Barfield? What, what step is he not willing to make with regards to this evolution? In his article, Historicism, Lewis talks about this, and he says, yes, there are changes in human sentiment. There are changes the way we talk about things, but this is not necessarily some metaphysical progress, always onward and upward of the human soul. It's just change. And so Lewis is saying change is okay. Seeing patterns in history is what historians should do. But to see some sort of meta-historical grand purpose that's in from the historical facts themselves, he doesn't think is possible. Now, actually, he's quite postmodern in that. And Barfield believed that there was this grand meta-historical narrative that Steiner had revealed of different stages and ages of mankind, in which case we would eventually become the spirit man. And so it, this evolution of consciousness was part of a grand narrative for Barfield. And for Lewis, he said, unless God has revealed it to us, we could never get a meta-historical narrative out of history and the facts of history itself. We can see changes and we can see patterns that repeat themselves. And we can see how people's thinking, for instance, he wrote his allegory of love all about how people's views of women changed over the centuries uh, through allegory and on into the modern romance and romantic movement. So he he was willing to de- definitely see changes and that our consciousness changes. He would not call it evolution in the sense, it, if evolution just means to change, yes, but if it means some sort of progress as... Um, measured against some sort of meta-historical narrative, that's what he rejected. And I think Barfield, after my article, he thanked me for the article, now saw what why Lewis didn't become an anthroposophist, because he wasn't willing to say that there was progress with a capital P or development with a capital D or evolution with a capital E. 
And it's kind of ironic, really, because, as you mentioned out of this great war, Lewis was cured of chronological snobbery. And it seems to me if you go for the full body, if you go for the full Barfieldian position on the evolution of consciousness, you are assuming that all progress is good, that all change yes. is good. And in chronological snobbery, we saw, no, it, nece it not, isn't necessarily. And therefore, why would you expect it to happen on a macro scale either? Well, I suppose they would say that ultimately the God or great spirit would make sure that it, it, it follows the proper narrative, even if there are setbacks. But in fact, they didn't, they didn't, they showed a pretty much uh, descent and reascent after Jesus' incarnation. There was a reascent starting. And yes, we do see things like all those words hyphenated self dash something coming in uh, after the Reformation, etc. And so, um, yes, there's change. And Lewis was perfectly willing to discuss change. He wrote a whole book on change of our view toward love, the idea of love in literature. Uh, but he doesn't think that it necessarily means progress. I could see a way of trying to redeem it when you place on Christian goggles and look at history, because ultimately we... The Christian position is that, no, we're going to end up in God's kingdom and everything will ultimately pro be progressing towards where it ultimately should be. And, you know, the, the pitfalls along the way and the stumbling along the way was, was, uh, was, was more of just a, a blip, something incidental. Well, Lewis believed in the fall. And I'm not sure Barfield believed. They believed in the fall, but they felt there was a fall. And Steiner felt there was a fall into matter, that it was our spirit falling into matter, which is very Gnostic. Mm. Um, Lewis believed that, yes, God has revealed certain things in Scripture, and so we know some of the big history, uh, the meta-historical narrative, but it wasn't gotten from within the facts of history itself. It's gotten from Revelation. He also believed that, he, he talks about this in several places, especially his funeral of great myth, et cetera, that we're not going to have progressive onward and upward. It looks as if we're going to have a sudden cataclysmic end at the second coming, and we're going to have... God step in. The, the author is going to step on stage and fix things that we've messed up. We haven't necessarily uh, having progress in all this. So he, he believed in the second coming as a dramatic fixing of history and change in history. And yet it's going to be from without and not sort of developed from within or by man's own self-consciousness evolving uh, with, through many, many incarnations in this world. Mm. And sort of just to wrap up that conversation, Barfield became an Anglican towards the end of his life. The impression I've always got is that he just felt like his anthroposophy could fit within that, rather than there being a distinct shift in his own views or opinions. Is that fair, or do you think there's something else going on? Well, I think... I think anthroposophists have to be the first to admit that his conversion could not be to a position that would deny what Steiner had written and, he, and Barfield himself had defended about the two different Jesuses, the two different Satans, the uh, importance of the incarnation and the tragic death rather than the saving death of Jesus on the cross. So they would have to admit that that doesn't mean that. They're, they're, they're using Christian, when they say he became a Christian, he was a Christian, that they're using it in its minimal sense that he believed that Jesus Christ uh, was in fact uh, part divine, <laughs> one of the Jesuses, and that uh, the incarnation of Jesus was the turning point in history. Now, the biographer, Simon Blackson DeLang, the only one who's written a long biography of Barfield, uh, 
hints, and others have as well, that he may have just become baptized in the Church of England to please his wife. His wife was never an anthroposophist, was angry about being an anthroposophist. They had fights over it. She basically said, you should have told me you were an anthroposophist when we got married and such. And so she remained a solid Christian attending church all her life. And he may have done this just for peace in his home later in life. Um, Lewis does write a letter thanking him, praising him or, or congratulating him on his uh, getting baptized in the Church of England. But I don't believe Simon Blackson de Lange or any other anthroposophist believes that he repudiated anthroposophy in becoming an Orthodox Christian. He didn't become an Orthodox Christian. He got baptized in the Church of England, which at that time was getting very broad anyways. Hmm. Is there anything else that you wanted to touch on uh, before we wrap up? No, I just think that uh, if you understand what Lewis was before he was a Christian and how it changed afterwards, you do not have to get confused by either his biography. People, for instance, take some Great War era talk of Jesus, of, of Lewis in the uh, Surprised by Joy when he's talking about his previous views and then they try to say, to fit it in with his post-Christian views, which doesn't work at all. If they understand that, I don't think that they have to go wrong in in Lewis's views. But they do end up with wrong views of Lewis trying to fit together. Now, I know Norbert Feinbergen is about to publish his, in English, his German thesis, where he tries to argue for a high view of imagination even after Lewis became a Christian. And I'm just saying, yes, it's high, but it's not spiritual. And he'll try to argue differently. We're we're friends and and, and like Barfield and I mean, not like Barfield. We're both Christians and believe Lewis is correct about many, many, many things. But he's going to argue that I'm slightly wrong in my book. And that's great if he actually argues from the data and we can continue. We've had epistolary discussions in seven where we finally ended up more or less agreeing on what the argument was about, but we haven't agreed on everything. <laughs> but we agree on the most important things. So like Lewis says in The Four Loves, you know, friends, they, they don't necessarily have to agree, but they have to agree that the same sorts of things are important. Important, yes. <laughs> Dr. Thorson, thank you so much for coming on Pints of Jack and helping us get a better understanding of the Barfield-Lewis war and the changes in ideas that happened in Lewis throughout that war, before, during, and after. Where can our listeners go to pick up a copy of your book and find out a little bit more about you? Well, they can go to Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Uh, Amazon didn't put any of the later reviews about the book on, but Barnes and Noble did some quotes from the different Lewis journal reviews about the book. And so it might be better for them to at least look at the reviews on Barnes and Noble, even if they end up buying it on Amazon, it doesn't matter to me. I've also had several newer articles about the importance of the great war from the Taylor university uh, colloquiums and in inklings forever, the faithful imagination. And most recently in a discussion of Barfield Lewis and Karl Barth in Zainzucht for 2020. So if they're interested in how I'm going to be presenting another uh, discussion at the next Inklings, whether we finally have one colloquium in Taylor, uh, C.S. Lewis colloquium in Taylor University, and I've uh, got a few ideas for more discussions of how expansions of little hints in my book of how the Great War is important in viewing later works of Lewis. Well, I'll put links to all of those things in the show notes. And I, I did go and read the reviews of your book. And one of my favorite ones was somebody saying that even though you're not an anthroposophist, you explained it clearly, accurately, and sympathetically, which yes. I think is high praise. <laughs> yes. 
there have been a couple of that have admitted that and said, I think anthroposophists should read this because it really explains where Barfield was at that time. And, and yes, Dr. Thorson agrees with Lewis more, but they thought it was fair, which is good. And a few other people have quietly written to Owen Barfield, the grandson, and uh, complained about my book, but <laughs> at least they didn't do it in public. I don't know if they could with Barfield's letters out there. <laughs> well, wonderful. Thank you so much. And all the best for your next trip to Nepal. And we also want to thank our listeners, particularly our Patreon supporters, and especially those of the top tier. That's Shane, John, Kevin, Brian, Kay, Monique, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Jake, Stephen, Matt, Jeff, Kelly. <gasps> Chris, John, James, Kate, and Rowdy. Thank you all for helping us put this podcast together. And you can always find out more about us at pintswithjack.com. And there you can send us messages, listen to past episodes, and pick up some of our lovely Pints with Jack laser-etched glasses. And so please join us next time when we'll continue going further up. And further in. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>